Um, I've had the joy of looking forward to this for a few weeks, and, and really, here we go, uh, not going to do this, and really for years. Um, it is a, a great joy, and we feel so blessed that God has given me this opportunity uh, to serve you, to teach his word to you. Um, so as you've heard, we're studying Ruth uh, this Advent, and uh, if that surprised you a little bit, it surprised me too. I didn't think of Ruth as a classic Advent uh, book uh, to work through, but uh, when I stopped and thought about it, and, uh, and maybe, maybe you thought of this already, um, in Matthew's genealogy at the very beginning, the genealogy of Jesus, Ruth is one of just four women other than Mary, the mother of Jesus, that he includes. And so Matthew thought that his audience would benefit from having Ruth in mind as they thought about the coming, the birth of Jesus. And I think that we will be pleasantly surprised at how much the book of Ruth helps us to appreciate the birth of Jesus as well. Let's pray before we begin. Lord, we're grateful for your word, for this time uh, to look closely at it, for the time you've been gracious to give me to study and reflect on this chapter. Lord, I pray that you would help us to better appreciate the significance of the birth of Jesus and the hope that we have because of it as we study the book of Ruth. So now please open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us and give us good and noble hearts that your word would bear fruit to your glory and to the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Right. Well, the apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that we should always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account or a reason for the hope that is in us. Now, we often use that verse to refer to the importance of being ready to defend our faith, to explain why we believe what we believe. But notice that it actually says that we should be ready to defend our hope. And so Peter assumes that our lives as followers of Jesus should be so characterized by hope that people would actually ask us, why we have such hope, and that there are reasons for having that hope. It's not a blind faith, but it's a reasonable hope. We should be looking forward with anticipation and confidence to the day when God keeps His promises and finally makes the world and us, His people, and life in the world the way that it was always meant to be, free of sin, free of conflict, free of pain and suffering and death, full of peace and joy and abundance. But when we look at our lives, as we experience difficult things, when we look at the way the world around us is moving further and further away from God's will, it might be easier to find reasons not to be hopeful. It can be hard to see how the world and our lives can get from where they are today to where the Bible says and God promises that they would one day be like. In other words, we might be a lot closer to hopeless than hopeful. But one thing that the book of Ruth teaches us is that we can hope in God in every kind of circumstance because God is always at work to keep his promises. 
Now, to be fair, Ruth chapter 1, our chapter for today, does not really give us reasons that we can hope in God. There's not much in the way of good news in Ruth chapter 1, and I appreciate Kendall being willing to read a rather depressing scripture reading uh, that provides a context for us thinking about hope. But Ruth 1 wasn't meant to be read in isolation from the rest of the book. Uh, And so in the next three chapters, we'll see how God was at work to keep His promises, to move some individual lives and His plans for His people and for the whole world from seemingly hopeless circumstances into something beautiful and glorious and joyful. What Ruth chapter 1 does is to flesh out or illustrate the kinds of circumstances the kinds of thoughts and feelings we might have about those circumstances when although things may seem hopeless, God is still at work to keep His promises and because He is, we can still hope in Him. So the first thing we learn from the first five verses in Ruth is that we can hope in God even when we experience great loss because even when we experience great loss, God is at work to keep His promises. Listen to the first verse of Ruth. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So the first thing we should notice about the book of Ruth is that the events in this book take place in the days when the judges governed. We can read about those days in the book of... Judges, which is right before Ruth in the Old Testament. And it's uh, some of the more interesting reading in the Old Testament. If, uh, if you've read it, you know what I mean. Uh, the final verse of Judges summarizes what that period of time was like. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So God's people, after experiencing His grace in the exodus, being delivered from slavery in Egypt, in His provision in the wilderness for 40 years, in being given the promised land as a gift, these people collectively rebelled against God's commands, including by worshiping the gods of the people who lived around them. And as a result, they experienced God's discipline in the form of oppression by their enemies, those surrounding peoples and nations, and, as we will see, through famines. They would cry out to God who would raise up a a sort of a military leader, a judge, who would deliver Israel from its enemies. But before long, if you've read Judges, you know what I'm talking about. Before long, they would go right back to their, their old habits, disobeying God, worshiping other gods in a seemingly endless and hopeless cycle. The final verse of Judges tells us that one of the main reasons that this apparently endless and hopeless cycle and disobedience and oppression kept going on is the lack of a king. Now here's a spoiler alert. The last word of Ruth, and I I don't want to take too much from what Tom will get to preach the next three weeks, I'm just only going to take the last word, um, is David. David, the king after God's own heart. So we'll see that the story of Ruth is about the way that God, even when the people as a whole had strayed from God over and over again, during that time, God was still working to fulfill His promises by raising up a king after God's own heart. 
Now, the original audience of Ruth, or the, the people for whom Ruth was written in the first place, were people living after the time of David when David's descendants reigned over the people. And it turns out that their time was not all that different from the time of the judges. Uh, it was no longer true that there was no king in Israel. Um, God had promised that a descendant of David would be raised up and that God would establish the throne of this descendant forever. We learned that the reign of this descendant of David would be characterized by things like rest, security from enemies, peace, abundant provision, long life, joy, the absence of weeping and crying. But most of the kings descended from David, worshipped other gods, and led the people to do the same. And as a result, people experienced things like oppression by their enemies and famines. Is this sounding familiar to you? The people needed not just any king, they needed the right kind of king, King Jesus the Messiah. Now, believe it or not, the days in which we live now are not all that different from the times of the judges and of the kings after David. The right King Jesus has come. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He died for our sins. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. But because he wants to give an opportunity for people all over the world to hear the good news about his coming reign and to be included in his kingdom, Jesus has not yet fully established his kingdom the way he will when he comes a second time. So we too, like the people in the time of the judges, like the people during the time of the kings, live in a period of waiting. Between a significant experience of God's grace and the full experience of all that God has promised, it's a time characterized by difficulties that can lead to feelings of hopelessness. So Ruth was also written for us to remind us that while we wait for King Jesus to return, God is still at work to keep his promises. Let's look at uh, beginning at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malin and Kilian also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Now, it's important to note that the book of Ruth actually focuses more on Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, than on Ruth herself. Even though the events of the next uh, few chapters revolve around Ruth, at the end of the book, the spotlight is shining on Naomi and on the change in her life that God has brought about through the intervening events. So what is it that happened in the days when the judges governed? If we could sum up what happened in the first five verses by saying that Naomi experienced great loss. First of all, there was a famine. This was almost certainly God's discipline on his people for their disobedience and idolatry. The first two verses tell us twice that a family of four left Bethlehem to look for food in Moab, its neighbor to the east. So if you want to orient yourself, Jerusalem's up here, Bethlehem is about five and a half miles south, and Moab is over here, kind of down on the east side of the southern part of the Dead Sea. 
Bethlehem means house of bread or house of food. So how bad was this famine? Well, it was bad enough that apparently a a town that was named for its abundance of food had run out of food. So this family, at least, probably others, uh, feeling desperate, decided that their best chance for survival was to leave the promised land and to look for food elsewhere. They would have lost relationships, security, stability, and peace because of the famine. And some of you might be able to relate if you've ever been so desperate that you have to take desperate measures to get what you or your family need just to survive. Not only was there a famine, there was death. And there was, as a result, widowhood. In verse 3, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, Naomi, who took his family from Judah to Moab to find food and save lives, lost his life. So that plan wasn't going very well. Naomi was left as a widow, but at least she had her two sons. To keep the family line going, they married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Not an ideal decision for Israelite men, but probably an understandable decision in the circumstances. Only two verses later, but ten years later, after Naomi had lost her husband, she also lost her two sons, Young men whose lives ended prematurely. So Orpah and Ruth were also left as widows, but the focus is on Naomi. Verse 5 says, The woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. If you've ever lost a spouse or a child or someone else in your life that can't really be replaced, you can relate to Naomi here. Even if the person you lost isn't the person you depended on for your livelihood, you still experience real and great loss. Sooner or later, we will all be able to identify with Naomi. But even in our deepest grief, in the moments when we're most aware of what we've lost, when it's hard to believe there could be a way forward into joy, abundance, and peace, we're reminded that there is reason for hope. Because the book of Ruth ends well, we can say that God was at work to keep his promises even in the midst of famine, even in the midst of death, and even in the midst of the loneliness and vulnerability of widowhood. God was at work even when Naomi was experiencing some of the greatest losses that a person can experience. And God is at work when we experience great loss too. So we can still hope in him. Now in the next section, the, really the longest section, the next 13 verses of Ruth, we learn that we can hope in God even when it doesn't make sense. Because even when it doesn't seem to make sense, God is at work to keep his promises. In this section of chapter 1, the way that we see that it doesn't seem to make sense to Naomi to hope in God is that she doesn't have any reasons to give her daughters-in-law for them to hope in God. She actually finds it easier to give them reasons to put their hope elsewhere. Now, this section does start off with some positive news for our three widows. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Moab. 
So Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah decide to head back to Bethlehem because there's food there again. We aren't sure how long they'd been on the way, but Naomi must have had some time to think. She must have been reflecting on her experiences since she had left Bethlehem to go to Moab. And she reached a conclusion. Returning to Bethlehem is a bad idea for Orpah and Ruth. So she hits the brakes, so to speak, and tries to get them to turn back. Listen to what she says in verses 8 through 10. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. So first, Naomi tries to simply send her daughters-in-law home with a blessing. Now, she does invoke the name of the Lord, so she seems to believe that God is still real despite her great loss and that God is able to do good things for people, even to Moabites. But the daughters-in-law refuse to return to their families. We don't really know why. Perhaps they were just doing what their culture expected them to do. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm leaving Friday to go to India to teach, and on a previous trip to India, I was told that if I'm in someone's home and they offer me tea, I'm supposed to say no. That way they can offer again, I can say no again, and then they can insist, and then I can finally accept the tea that maybe I really needed due to jet lag in the first place. And so maybe that's all that the daughters-in-law were doing. They knew that at first they needed to say, no, we're going to stick with you so that Naomi can urge them a second time to return home. And if that's what they expected, Naomi does not disappoint. Listen to what she says in the next four verses. But Naomi, Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The bottom line of Naomi's argument is that the only logical reason for them to follow her back to Bethlehem, the only reason that makes sense is if Naomi could provide them with husbands. We could maybe paraphrase Naomi this way. Look, my daughters, I'm 52 years old, in our culture, no man is going to marry me. And even if they did, I'm too old to have a baby. I can't give you a husband. And then she continues by pointing out that even if she could find a husband and become pregnant right away, they wouldn't want to wait 20 years or so for these baby boys to grow up to be husbands for them. In Naomi's mind, if anything good was going to happen to Orpah or Ruth in Bethlehem, it would have to come from Naomi, and Naomi had nothing for them. But she's wrong about that. She's leaving something, actually someone important, 
out of the equation. It's the God of Bethlehem and of all Israel, her God, who has a history of providing for people in surprising ways. Orpah was convinced by Naomi's argument. She concluded that her best chance to experience security and provision was in Moab and not in Bethlehem. So she kissed Naomi, said her sad goodbye, but what would Ruth do? She puts her arms around Naomi. Is this a goodbye hug? She doesn't let go. She keeps holding on. She clings to Naomi. And so Naomi proceeds with her closing arguments in verses 15 to 18. Really, only 15, and then the continuing verses tell us how Ruth responded. Then she, Naomi, said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she, Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Now, Naomi's short argument in verse 15 actually contains two elements. The first is that Orpah had already decided to go back home. So if Ruth was feeling some cultural pressure to stick with her mother-in-law, if she was afraid that there would be shame associated with a decision to return home, Naomi's saying, it's okay. Look, or- Orpah isn't staying. You wouldn't be breaking tradition here. You'd be doing what makes sense, like Orpah did. Be like Orpah. The other element that Naomi introduces is the religious element. Ruth's decision has very important religious implications. In the worldview of the people outside Israel, and it seems for some of the people inside Israel as well, gods were territorial. A nation of people and their land and their god or gods were a package deal. They went together. So Orpah's decision to return to her people was also a decision to return to her gods, to put her hope in the gods of Moab in order to experience security and rest and abundance. Naomi reminds Ruth that her decision has these religious implications. If she goes to Bethlehem with Naomi, she necessarily cuts herself off from the help of the gods of Moab and puts all of her hope in the God of Israel. Naomi wants Ruth to remember this fact and expects that that should convince her to go back to Moab. But very much aware of these religious implications, Ruth chooses Naomi and her people and her God over Ruth's own people and gods. She chooses the package deal that includes the God of Israel and rejects the package deal that includes the gods of Moab. Now, we don't know exactly all that that Ruth understood about the God of Israel and believed about the God of Israel, but she did explicitly choose that God. She even invokes the Lord's name in her oath to stick with Naomi even to death. So however she arrived at that decision, God's grace was at work to bring Ruth back to Bethlehem with Naomi and, as we'll see over the next few weeks, to bring about a a happy result for Ruth and for Naomi and actually for people of every nation.
in expressing her commitment to Naomi and her God, Ruth makes a very beautiful promise that you might have heard read at a wedding. Ironic that it was made by a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. Um, she also basically says that if anything but death separates her from Naomi, God should take her life. But Naomi doesn't respond with gratitude or praising Ruth for her loyalty. It says that she said no more to her. That suggests that Naomi didn't think Ruth was making a wise decision, um, just that Ruth wouldn't listen to reason. Naomi was done wasting her breath on Ruth. What Naomi didn't know yet was that God in all of this was actually working to keep his promises even when Naomi couldn't find reasons to keep hoping that God would keep his promises even when it didn't make sense. In the final section of chapter 1, Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem and the words of Naomi reveal to us just how she thought and felt about the life that God had given her. In this section, we learn that we can hope in God even when, when it feels like he's against us. Because even when it feels like he's against us, God is at work to keep his promises. So verse 19, Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem, and the women of the town asked, is this Naomi? Now, we don't know exactly why they were asking that question. Um, maybe they were just surprised to see her again, or maybe her difficult life had so affected her appearance that they weren't even sure if this was the Naomi that they remembered. What's more important is their use of her name sets the stage for Naomi's response. Now, Naomi's name means pleasant, but she decided that her name should be changed because it so inaccurately described her and her life. Maybe you can imagine uh, Ruth like, a, um, like this. So a really sensitive, bald guy named Harry who hates it when people use his name because it just reminds him that he lost all of his hair. <laughs> but, but, but Naomi is not trying to be funny. She's deadly serious. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. And then she presents her argument for why that is an appropriate name for her in verses 20 and 21. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? There are two major themes in Naomi's explanation here. Notice first the great extent of her loss. Her life has become bitter. She's empty although she had been full. She is afflicted. And now notice the ways that she assigns to God the responsibility for her loss. The Almighty has dealt very bitter, bitterly with me. The Lord caused me to come back empty. The Lord has witnessed against me. The Almighty has afflicted me. Naomi points to evidence that supports her conclusion that the Lord is against her. She doesn't seem to think that this is a temporary season of bitterness and that a pleasant season is coming. The fact that she thinks her name should be changed suggests that her conviction is that her bitter state is permanent because of the Lord's opposition to her. Can you identify 
with Naomi. Have you ever felt like the Lord was against you? Maybe because of your loss of something or someone very valuable. Maybe because he seems to be making you wait far longer than you think is necessary in order to experience, receive something very important. Or maybe it's not some big thing that makes you feel like the Lord's against you. Maybe it's just all these little things that happen one after another after another that seem to be no coincidence that lead you to the conclusion that God just might be opposed to you? Have you maybe even said to someone else that you thought that God was against you the way Naomi did? Well, as the story unfolds over the next three chapters, we'll see that Naomi begins to recognize that the Lord is actually not against her as he provides for her needs and for Ruth's needs. We'll see that by the end of Ruth, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, is actually named appropriately. Here's what we will not see. God holding Naomi's feelings or her words against her. Naomi felt like God was against her. She even told other people that in a very definitive way. But God was still at work even as she spoke those words to keep his promises for his people, including Naomi, to bring some relief in the short term to Naomi as he provided for her needs and restored some of what she had lost. So what do we do with Ruth 1? Remember, it's a pretty bitter story. Well, it is just the bitter beginning of a story that has a very pleasant and joyful conclusion. But not just in Ruth chapter 4, but as the entire story of the Bible continues to unfold. But Ruth 1 is our invitation to consider how we might identify with Naomi as people who have perhaps experienced great loss or who could experience and most likely will experience some great loss in the future. As people who, maybe because of that loss, struggle to believe that it makes sense to keep putting their hope in God as people who, at times at least, may just feel like the Lord is against us. In some ways, at least, we might feel as hopeless as Naomi when, in fact, God is still at work to keep his promises, and we actually, in those most hopeless moments, have every reason to keep putting our hope in him. So what is the great loss that you have experienced or that you dread the thought of ever experiencing? What is it that does or would make you wonder if God might be against you and whether it still makes sense to keep hoping in him? Are you like Naomi? Do you have legitimate concerns for the basic needs of yourself and your family? Have you lost a spouse or a child? Do you grieve the loss of some relationship for some reason other than death? Are you maybe grieving while you're waiting for a relationship that you thought you would have by now, but it hasn't yet become a reality? Have you somehow lost your health or or your ability to do something that used to bring you great satisfaction? Are there circumstances outside of you or thoughts in your own mind that rob you of peace and you can't remember what it's like to be free of fear or anxiety? In the midst of all of these things and more, God is still at work to make sure that every one of his promises is fulfilled. 
There are reasons to keep hoping in Him even when it seems like things will never change or, like, or be like they ever were or like we thought they would be. There are reasons to keep hoping in God even when all of our circumstances make us feel like He's against us. He's actually still working to keep all of His promises. So what does it look like to hope in God in these kinds of circumstances? First of all, just like we're only at the end of Ruth chapter 1, we need to remember that we live in the middle of a story with an ending better than we can imagine. Now, we are closer to the end of the story than, Ruth, or than Naomi was and Ruth, so it should be a little bit easier for us to see how the story will reach its conclusion. But being closer to the end of the story doesn't mean that our experience of life is easier than that of Naomi and Ruth. In fact, the Bible seems to promise that it will be more difficult closer to the end. But we are still in the middle of the story. And if we say that the story starts in Ruth 1, it continues to Ruth 4 with some good news for Naomi and Ruth, but the promise of David. And then there's a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 about this great and righteous king who would reign forever justly. And then in Luke 1 and 2, the reason that the birth of Jesus is such good news and brings such great joy is it means that God was still moving His plan forward to fulfill His promises. And then in Luke 23, when Jesus is killed by His enemies, even though it paid for our sins, it seemed like the hopes for God's kingdom that He had promised to become a reality had died. And so God kept moving the plan forward into Luke 24, and He raised Jesus from the dead, and Jesus ascended into heaven. And so in this in-between time, we're between Luke 24 and Revelation, we're waiting for the return of King Jesus. And one day, we sang it earlier, um, Revelation 11, these words from Revelation 11:15 will be heard throughout the world. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. We're still waiting for that. We're waiting for the, the new heavens and the new earth that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22 with no death, no more tears, no more pain, no more mourning. But that's how the story will end for all of God's people. No matter how painful or hopeless the story might be or seem before it reaches its conclusion. Stories like Naomi's with a, a happy ending in this life, like the stories of the miracles that Jesus performed during his, his earthly ministry, are not guarantees that all of God's people will get to experience those kinds of things in this life. Instead, they're shadows, they're hints, they're foretastes of what we will all experience one day in His perfect kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where all of our stories are heading. How else do we hope in God in these circumstances? We reject the temptation. Whoop, I skipped to the third one. We acknowledge that suffering and loss are not incompatible with God's love and faithfulness. We might wish that to be the case, that to be loved by God would mean being spared from suffering and loss and grief. But remember, that wasn't even the case for Jesus, His sinless, beloved Son. But the reality is this, and we read it in Romans 10 and Isaiah 28 and 1 Peter 2, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. 
Those who trust or hope in Jesus are not exempt from very difficult things, but in the end, none of them, no matter what they may have suffered, will be disappointed. No one who hopes in Jesus will regret it in the end. Finally, we reject the temptation to hope in other gods and instead cling to Jesus as our only hope. When Jesus, the right king, the one we're waiting for, does return, a billion stories like Naomi's, like Ruth's, like Elimelech's, like yours and mine, a billion stories filled with loss and pain and great disappointment will, in an instant, at the same moment, reach a happier conclusion than we can imagine. But there really is no happy conclusion apart from him. No other gods, nothing else that you put your hope in, no amount of money, no amount of success, no number of friends can bring what Jesus will bring us. So if you feel hopeless, let this truth sink deep into your heart and mind. Whatever twists and turns or joyful peaks or painful valleys you may go through, your story, if you have chosen to cling to Jesus as your only hope, will have a glorious conclusion. You can be 100% confident that you will not regret putting your hope in Him. And if you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in the God of Israel, the Father of Jesus, and we are glad you're here, but if you've not yet trusted in Him, the story of Ruth who rejected other gods and put her hope in the God we worship here in this church and who is worshiped around the world is a reminder that you too are invited to put your hope in Him, to forsake all other gods and anything else that you might put your hope in and become one of His people to share in the promises that He is always working to keep. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you that even when we can't see it, even when everything we experience would scream at us at, to the contrary, that you are still at work to keep your promises, to do for us something glorious and more wonderful than we can imagine. And Lord, I pray for these people, those who are in this room this morning, those who couldn't be but are watching Lord, I pray that this Advent season would be a time in which you plant great hope into their hearts, hope that would free them from all the struggles with anxiety and fear, discouragement that they may carry into this day and into this month. Lord, please set us free into the hopefulness that would catch the attention of our neighbors and cause them to ask us and help us to always know that we have a reason for this hope. Lord, would you give us this gift as we wait for the return of the perfect King, Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.